Chapter 20 of The Works of the Right Honourable Edmund Burke, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jennifer Painter. The Works of the Right Honourable Edmund Burke, Volume 1, by Edmund Burke. Chapter 20 Part 3 of Observations on a Late Publication, entitled The Present State of the Nation. Having thus gone through the questions of war and peace, the author proceeds to state our debt and the interest which it carried at the time of the treaty, with the unfairness and inaccuracy, however, which distinguish all his assertions and all his calculations. To detect every fallacy and rectify every mistake would be endless, it will be enough to point out a few of them, in order to show how unsafe it is to place anything like an implicit trust in such a writer. The interest of debt contracted during the war is stated by the author at £2,614,892. The particulars appear in pages 14 and 15. Among them is stated the unfunded debt, nine million nine hundred and seventy five thousand and seventeen pounds supposed to carry interest on a medium at three per cent which amounts to two hundred and ninety nine thousand two hundred and fifty pounds we are referred to the considerations on the trade and finances of the kingdom page twenty two for the particulars of that unfunded debt turn to the work and to the place referred to by the author himself if you have a mind to see a clear detection of a capital fallacy of this article in his account. You will see there that this unfunded debt consists of the nine following articles. The remaining subsidy to the Duke of Brunswick, the remaining dédommagement to the Landgrave of Hesse, the German demands, the army and ordnance extraordinaries, the deficiencies of grants and funds, Mr. Touché's claim, the debts due to Nova Scotia and Barbados, exchequer bills, and navy debt. The extreme fallacy of this state cannot escape any reader who will be at the pains to compare the interest money, with which he affirms us to have been loaded, in his State of the Nation, with the items of the principal debt to which he refers in his Considerations. The reader must observe that of this long list of nine articles, only two, the Exchequer Bills and part of the Navy Debt, carried any interest at all. The first amounted to £1,800,000, and this undoubtedly carried interest. The whole Navy Debt indeed amounted to £4,576,915, but of this only a part carried interest. The author of the Considerations, etc., labours to prove this very point in page 18, and Mr. G. has always defended himself upon the same ground for the insufficient provision he made for the discharge of that debt. The reader may see their own authority for it. Mr. G. did in fact provide no more than £2,150,000 for the discharge of these bills in two years. It is much to be wished that these gentlemen would lay their heads together, that they would consider well this matter and agree upon something. 
for when the scanty provision made for the unfunded debt is to be vindicated, then we are told it is a very small part of that debt which carries interest. But when the public is to be represented in a miserable condition, and the consequences of the late war to be laid before us in dreadful colours, then we are to be told that the unfunded debt is within a trifle of ten millions, and so large a portion of it carries interest that we must not compute less than three per cent upon the whole. In the year 1764, Parliament voted £650,000 towards the discharge of the Navy debt. This sum could not be applied solely to the discharge of bills carrying interest, because part of the debt due on seamen's wages must have been paid, and some bills carried no interest at all. Notwithstanding this, we find by an account in the journals of the House of Commons, in the following session, that the Navy debt carrying interest was, on the 31st of December, 1764, no more than £1,687,442. I am sure, therefore, that I admit too much when I admit the Navy debt carrying interest after the creation of the Navy annuities in the year 1763 to have been £2,200,000. Add the Exchequer bills and the whole unfunded debt carrying interest will be four millions instead of ten, and the annual interest paid for it at four per cent will be a hundred and sixty thousand pounds instead of two hundred and ninety nine thousand two hundred and fifty pounds, an error of no small magnitude, and which could not have been owing to inadvertency. The misrepresentation of the increase of the peace establishment is still more extraordinary than that of the interest of the unfunded debt. The increase is great, undoubtedly. However, the author finds no fault with it, and urges it only as a matter of argument to support the strange chimerical proposals he is to make us in the close of his work for the increase of revenue. The greater he made that establishment, the stronger he expected to stand in argument. But, whatever he expected or proposed, he should have stated the matter fairly. He tells us that this establishment is nearly one million five hundred thousand pounds more than it was in 1752, 1753 and other years of peace. This he has done in his usual manner by assertion, without troubling himself either with proof or probability. For he has not given us any state of the peace establishment in the years 1753 and 1754, the time which he means to compare with the present. As I am obliged to force him to that position, from which he always flies as from his most dangerous enemy, I have been at the trouble to search the journals in the period between the two last wars, and I find that the peace establishment, consisting of the navy, the ordnance, and the several incidental expenses, amounted to two million three hundred and forty six thousand five hundred and ninety four pounds now is this writer wild enough to imagine that the peace establishment of seventeen sixty four and the subsequent years made up from the same articles is three million eight hundred thousand pounds and upwards his assertion however goes to this but i must take the liberty of correcting him in this gross mistake and from an authority he cannot refuse from his favourite work and standing authority, the Considerations.
We find there, page 43, the peace establishment of 1764 and 1765 stated at £3,609,700. This is near £200,000 less than that given in The State of the Nation. But even from this, in order to render the articles which compose the peace establishment in the two periods correspondent, for otherwise they cannot be compared, we must deduct first his articles of the deficiency of land and malt, which amount to £300,000. They certainly are no part of the establishment, nor are they included in that sum, which I have stated above for the establishment in the time of the former peace. If they were proper to be stated at all, they ought to be stated in both accounts. We must also deduct the deficiencies of funds, £202,400. These deficiencies are the difference between the interest charged on the public for monies borrowed and the produce of the tax laid for the discharge of that interest. Annual provision is indeed to be made for them by Parliament, but in the inquiry before us, which is only what charge is brought on the public by interest paid or to be paid for money borrowed, the utmost that the author should do is to bring into the account the full interest for all that money. This he has done in page 15, and he repeats it in page 18, the very page I am now examining, £2,614,892. To comprehend afterwards in the peace establishment the deficiency of the fund created for payment of that interest, would be laying twice to the account of the war part of the same sum. Suppose ten millions borrowed at four per cent, and the fund for payment of the interest to produce no more than two hundred thousand pounds. The whole annual charge on the public is four hundred thousand pounds. It can be no more. But to charge the interest in one part of the account, and then the deficiency in the other, would be charging six hundred thousand pounds. The deficiency of funds must therefore be also deducted from the peace establishment in the considerations, and then the peace establishment in that author will be reduced to the same articles with those included in the sum I have already mentioned for the peace establishment before the last war in the year 1753 and 1754. Peace establishment in the considerations, £3,609,700. Deduct deficiency of land and malt, £300,000. Ditto of funds, £202,400. Total £3,107,300. Peace establishment before the late war, in which no deficiencies of land and malt or funds are included, £2,346,594. Difference... £760,706, being about half the sum which our author has been pleased to suppose it. Let us put the whole together. The author states, Difference of peace establishment before and since the war, £1,500,000. Interest of debt contracted by the war, £2,614,892. Total, £4,114,892. 
the real difference in the peace establishment is £760,706. The actual interest of the funded debt, including that charged on the sinking fund, £2,315,642. The actual interest of unfunded debt, at most, £160,000. Total interest of debt contracted by the war, £2,475,642. Increase of peace establishment and interest of new debt, £3,236,348. Error of the author, £878,544. It is true the extraordinaries of the army have been found considerably greater than the author of the considerations was pleased to foretell they would be. The author of The Present State avails himself of that increase and, finding it suit his purpose, sets the whole down in the peace establishment of the present times. If this is allowed him, his error perhaps may be reduced to £700,000, but I doubt the author of the considerations will not thank him for admitting £200,000 and upwards as the peace establishment for extraordinaries, when that author has so much laboured to confine them within £35,000. These are some of the capital fallacies of the author. To break the thread of my discourse as little as possible, I have thrown into the margin many instances, though God knows far from the whole of his inaccuracies, inconsistencies, and want of common care. I think myself obliged to take some notice of them, in order to take off from any authority this writer may have, and to put an end to the deference which careless men are apt to pay to one who boldly arrays his accounts and marshals his figures in perfect confidence that their correctness will never be examined. However, for argument, I am content to take his state of it. The debt was and is enormous. The war was expensive. The best economy had not perhaps been used. But I must observe that war and economy are things not easily reconciled, and that the attempt of leaning towards parsimony in such a state may be the worst management, and in the end the worst economy in the world, hazarding the total loss of all the charge incurred and of everything along with it. But cui bono all this detail of our debt? Has the author given a single light towards any material reduction of it? Not a glimmering. We shall see in its place what sort of thing he proposes. But before he commences his operations, in order to scare the public imagination, he raises by art magic a thick mist before our eyes, through which glare the most ghastly and horrible phantoms. Hunc igitur terrorem, animi tenebrasque necesses est, non radii solis, neque lucida tela dei, discutiant sed nature species ratioque. Let us therefore calmly, if we can, for the fright into which he has put us, appreciate those dreadful and deformed gorgons and hydras which inhabit the joyless regions of an imagination fruitful in nothing but the production of monsters. His whole representation is founded on the supposed operation of our debt 
upon our manufactures and our trade. To this cause he attributes a certain supposed dearness of the necessaries of life, which must compel our manufacturers to emigrate to cheaper countries, particularly to France, and with them the manufacture. Thence consumption declining, and with it revenue. He will not permit the real balance of our trade to be estimated so high as £2,500,000, and the interest of the debt to foreigners carries off £1,500,000 of that balance. France is not in the same condition. Then follow his wailings and lamentations, which he renews over and over according to his custom, a declining trade and decreasing specie on the point of becoming tributary to France, of losing Ireland, of having the colonies torn away from us. The first thing upon which I shall observe is, what he takes for granted as the clearest of all propositions, the emigration of our manufacturers to France, I undertake to say that this assertion is totally groundless, and I challenge the author to bring any sort of proof of it. If living is cheaper in France, that is, to be had for less specie, wages are proportionably lower. No manufacturer, let the living be what it will, was ever known to fly for refuge to low wages. Money is the first thing which attracts him. Accordingly, our wages attract artificers from all parts of the world. From two shillings to one shilling is a fall in all men's imaginations, which no calculation upon a difference in the price of the necessaries of life can compensate. But it will be hard to prove that a French artificer is better fed, clothed, lodged and warmed than one in England. For that is the sense, and the only sense, of living cheaper. If, in truth and fact, our artificer fares as well in all these respects as one in the same state in France, how stands the matter in point of opinion and prejudice, the springs by which people in that class of life are chiefly actuated? The idea of our common people concerning French living is dreadful, altogether as dreadful as our authors can possibly be of the state of his own country, a way of thinking that will hardly ever prevail on them to desert to France. But, leaving the author's speculations, the fact is that they have not deserted, and of course the manufacture cannot be departed, or departing with them. I am not indeed able to get at all the details of our manufactures, though I think I have taken full as much pains for that purpose as our author. Some I have by me, and they do not hitherto, thank God, support the author's complaint, unless a vast increase in the quantity of goods manufactured be a proof of losing the manufacture. On a view of the registers in the West Riding of Yorkshire, for three years before the war, and for the three last, it appears that the quantity of cloths entered were as follows. 1752. Pieces broad, 60,724. Pieces narrow, 72,442. 1753. Pieces broad, 55,358. Pieces narrow, 71,618. 1754. Pieces broad, 56,070. Pieces narrow, 72,394. Total pieces broad, 172,152. 
total pieces narrow, 216,454. 1765, pieces broad, 54,660. Pieces narrow, 77,419. 1766, pieces broad, 72,575. Pieces narrow, 78,893. 1767, pieces broad, 102,428. Pieces narrow, 78,819. Three years ending 1767, pieces broad, 229,663. Pieces narrow, 235,131. Three years ending 1754, pieces broad, 172,152. Pieces narrow, 216,464. Increase, pieces broad, 57,511. Pieces narrow, 18,677. In this manner, this capital branch of manufacture has increased under the increase of taxes, and this is not from a declining, but from a greatly flourishing period of commerce. I may say the same on the best authority of the fabric of thin goods at Halifax, of the bays at Rochdale, and of that infinite variety of admirable manufactures that grow and extend every year among the spirited, inventive, and enterprising traders of Manchester. A trade sometimes seems to perish when it only assumes a different form. Thus the coarsest woollens were formerly exported in great quantities to Russia, the Russians now supply themselves with these goods. But the export thither of finer cloths has increased in proportion as the other has declined. Possibly some parts of the kingdom may have felt something like a languor in business. Objects like trade and manufacture, which the very attempt to confine would certainly destroy, frequently change their place, and thereby, far from being lost, are often highly improved. Thus some manufactures have decayed in the west and south, which have made new and more vigorous shoots when transplanted into the north. And here it is impossible to pass by, though the author has said nothing upon it, the vast addition to the mass of British trade, which has been made by the improvement of Scotland. What does he think of the commerce of the city of Glasgow, and of the manufactures of Paisley and all the adjacent country? Has this anything like the deadly aspect, and facies Hippocratica, which the false diagnostic of our state physician has given to our trade in general? Has he not heard of the ironworks of such magnitude, even in their cradle, which are set up on the Caron, and which at the same time have drawn nothing from Sheffield, Birmingham, or Wolverhampton? This might perhaps be enough to show the entire falsity of the complaint concerning the decline of our manufactures. But every step we advance, this matter clears up more, and the false terrors of the author are dissipated, and fade away as the light appears. The trade and manufactures of this country, says he, going to ruin, and a diminution of our revenue from consumption, must attend the loss of so many seamen and artificers. Nothing more true than the general observation, nothing more false than its application to our circumstances. 
Let the revenue on consumption speak for itself. Average of net excise since the new duties, three years ending 1767, four million five hundred and ninety thousand seven hundred and thirty four pounds ditto before the new duties three years ending seventeen fifty nine three million two hundred and sixty one thousand six hundred and ninety four pounds average increase one million three hundred and twenty nine thousand and forty pounds here is no diminution here is on the contrary an immense increase this is owing, I shall be told, to the new duties, which may increase the total bulk, but at the same time may make some diminution of the produce of the old. Were this the fact, it would be far from supporting the author's complaint. It might have proved that the burden lay rather too heavy, but it would never prove that the revenue from consumption was impaired, which it was his business to do. But what is the real fact? Let us take, as the best instance for the purpose, the produce of the old hereditary and temporary excise granted in the reign of Charles the Second, whose object is that of most of the new impositions, from two averages, each of eight years. Average, first period, eight years, ending 1754, 525,317 pounds. Ditto, second period, eight years, ending 1767, five hundred and thirty eight thousand five hundred and forty two pounds increase six hundred and thirteen thousand two hundred and twenty five pounds i have taken these averages as including in each a war and a peace period the first before the imposition of the new duties the other since those impositions and such is the state of the oldest branch of the revenue from consumption besides the acquisition of so much new this article, to speak of no other, has rather increased under the pressure of all those additional taxes to which the author is pleased to attribute its destruction. But as the author has made his grand effort against those moderate, judicious and necessary levies, which support all the dignity, the credit and the power of his country, the reader will excuse a little further detail on this subject, that we may see how little oppressive those taxes are on the shoulders of the public, with which he labours so earnestly to load its imagination. For this purpose, we take the state of that specific article upon which the two capital burdens of the war leaned the most immediately, by the additional duties on malt and upon beer. Average of strong beer, brewed in eight years before the additional malt and beer duties, 3,895,059 barrels. Average of strong beer eight years since the duties, 4,060,726 barrels. Increase in the last period, 165,667 barrels. Here is the effect of two such daring taxes as three pence by the bushel additional on malt and three shillings by the barrel additional on beer two impositions laid without remission one upon the neck of the other, and laid upon an object which before had been immensely loaded. They did not in the least impair the consumption, it has grown under them. It appears that, upon the whole, the people did not feel so much inconvenience from the new duties as to oblige them to take refuge in the private brewery. 
Quite the contrary happened in both these respects in the reign of King William, and it happened from much slighter impositions. No people can long consume a commodity for which they are not well able to pay. An enlightened reader laughs at the inconsistent chimera of our author, of a people universally luxurious and at the same time oppressed with taxes and declining in trade. For my part, I cannot look on these duties as the author does. He sees nothing but the burden. I can perceive the burden as well as he, but I cannot avoid contemplating also the strength that supports it. From thence I draw the most comfortable assurances of the future vigour and the ample resources of this great misrepresented country, and can never prevail on myself to make complaints which have no cause, in order to raise hopes which have no foundation. End of chapter 20